Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to remember those who have transgressed against the great spirit of inclusion and must henceforth be forever cast into the abyss of dead names. In this moment of our remembrance, we prove with great grief and wailing the sincerity of our noble tolerance. What we once wrongly allowed in the ignorance of white privilege has become the cleansing rite of virtue signaling we use to prove our purity. Join with me now as we remember those we've lost. First, young Pink Floyd fans who recently expressed hostility toward the band for releasing an image on the 50th anniversary of Dark Side of the Moon with a white triangle, the number five, and a rainbow-filled zero. These blossoming homophobes objected to a classic band aligning itself with our beautiful rainbow symbol as if it can ever be a flaw to virtue signal allyship for people of the acronym. Now, obviously, there's something very concerning that even a single young person could have managed to elude our best efforts to indoctrinate him, her, they, or Zim, but of course, the real embarrassment is in thinking that Pink Floyd is new to the rainbow game. Although we don't like to admit it, Pink Floyd made the rainbow cool even before we did. However, looking back on that famous album cover art through the infinite wisdom of our current enlightenment, it is worth noting some of the flaws in the presentation. There's just no getting around the problematic relationship between the white light on the left side of the prism and the rainbow on the right side. Is this picture saying that whiteness is the real source of diversity? Is it saying that the rainbow depends upon whiteness for its existence? Is it holding whiteness up as the pure and perfect mixture of all the colors? The horrific sublimation of all colors into the single overlord Borg of whiteness is, well, not good. Need I go on? I will say, we do appreciate the depiction of a single white beam on one side and the beautiful rainbow on the other, pictorially representing them perhaps as adversaries or competing forces on the prismatic battlefield. And certainly, we appreciate the concept of fracturing whiteness into a divergence of rainbow colors in a world which no longer offers any safe space to the white light. But still, too much white and too much power for the white. Also, pay attention to the fact that this entire picture is only possible against the contrasting rich, deep blackness of the backdrop. But should blackness be treated as mere background for whiteness and rainbows, as if the role of blackness in the world is mere pretext or servitude? Gaia forbid! So be careful to whom you show this image and be certain that they are adept enough in the faith to properly contextualize its numerous inadequacies. Woe unto all who offend. Woe unto all who offend. Second, Squaw Valley. The California region, which has finally been renamed by the Department of the Interior in a way that does not perpetuate linguistic violence against indigenous women. I suppose I'd need to explain to you the misogyny and indigenophobia embodied in this awful term. I'll just assume you've mastered Vignok's fourth homily on honoring the victims of Manifest Destiny, <laughs> obviously. But despite the, uh, the need to change Squaw Valley's name, the residents are now complaining that the new name is not what they wanted. They say they would have preferred Bear Valley or Dunlap Valley instead of the very appropriate Yokuts Valley. But look, the whole purpose of forcing the occupying whites to undo an offensive name isn't accomplished if the whites then get to pick the new name for themselves. In order for us to teach them their place in this brave new world, they must dislike the name. Oppressors don't get to decide their own penance. Only by forcing them to use a name they hate can they learn to empathize with the oppressed people whose stolen land they inhabit. Moreover, the stranger the name and the harder it is to pronounce, the better. The ideal name would be one that honors the indigenous people and also contorts the mouths of the white occupiers in a way that reminds them of their own complicity every time they say it. This is why, for example, even though so many indigenous terms and phrases must go, such as beat the drums, send up smoke signals, scalp the tickets, and make big heap wampum, at least one expression remains acceptable. 
Yes, you may still call a close friend Kimosabe. As long as you do it with a properly heavy native inflection, honoring the underlying culture by making your own language awkward through hypercorrective pronunciation. Anything that serves to make Caucasian Americans feel awkward and remind them they are outsiders and cultural oppressors for butchering an appropriated language is basically good. Thus, to all the Kimosabis of Yokuts Valley, we offer you this culturally respected peace pipe. Please, let us smoke it with you. Woe unto all who offend. Woe unto all who offend. And finally, the U.S. State Department, for its courageous decision to advance the causes of justice and inclusion by abandoning its two-decade-long folly of using Times New Roman font and modernizing its typeface to Calibri. Now, although we, of course, applaud the State Department for this change, it's worth noting how late they are to the cause. Microsoft Word already made this exact switch in 2007. Their goal was to present a font which was easier for people with vision impairment to read, as well as for optical character recognition programs, both of which struggle with the serifs or decorative flair of Times New Roman. Although some will say the State Department has serif on their faces <laughs> for having to change font again so soon after having just changed to Times New Roman from the very antiquated teletype safes of Courier New in 2004, we actually see this as a positive thing. You see, even if the fonts were exactly the same in functionality, which they are not, we should always celebrate upending the status quo as continual revolution is the reminder the cultural elites need to challenge and reassess their own privilege constantly. The regular changing of everything we take for granted cultivates a healthy mindset of uncertainty, self-doubt, and low confidence, just the sort of haplessly demoralized demeanor we want for people in general. Staying with any one way of speaking, or even printing, for too long reinforces the paradigm of conservatism, which, of course, we abhor. Now, it is true, as some might say, that Times New Roman is more aesthetically pleasing to the eye. But at what cost? Can anyone really defend marginalizing the vision impaired in order to preserve a tiny dose of artistic flair for those with excellent eyesight? Who could even enjoy the prettier font knowing the pain it causes to others? No, this crass ableism is the reason they adopted Times New Roman in the first place, failing both to grasp the needs of the visually challenged as well as the burgeoning world of digital character conversion. No, my friends, no. Standard fonts, which are as boring as the least of us need them to be, are the correct norm. There's a new sans serif in town, and his name is Calibri. Hail the anti-bold typeface reformation. Woe unto all who offend. Woe unto all who offend. And now, with these cleansing rites performed, may we all go forth in loving tolerance and microaggress no more. Woe unto all who offend. Woe unto all who offend! 